This is a podcast from Minute Media. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Surely You Can't Be Serious podcast. This week, as we dive into Run DMC in our two-part hip-hop episode. D, you okay? Uh, I don't know, man. I'm, I'm feeling pretty bad. But not bad meaning bad, bad meaning good. <laughs> uh, he's so tricky. Uh. Welcome back, everybody. We are in the second album of our two album comparison from 1986. The two albums that brought the new school of hip hop to the forefront of mainstream. These are the trendsetters. These are the trailblazing albums for hip-hop and we've got with us today our friend mr david wright otherwise known as deaf dave how you doing dave doing great david wright deaf dave my pronouns are the lord of lyrics the duke of discussion and the son of byford (laughs) that's awesome dave man we're so glad to have you back you are a hip-hop expert and that's why we invited you here the lyrics and the rhymes are just going to start falling out of your mouth as soon as we get going here i would say i'm an expert on rap from the 80s for sure and i'm fascinated by the history of how it all got started in the 70s so i'm excited to be able to uh, talk about it with you okay so in this episode we're going to do a little bit on the history of rap we'll do a little bit about the beginnings and the origins of run dmc and where they got started and how they got going and then in our next episode we'll go track by track through the raising hell album yeah, we're midway through this uh, series of episodes. If you have not caught our Beastie Boys episode, go back two episodes and hear the story of the Beastie Boys from way back in history, and then listen to our epic track-by-track coverage of Licensed to Ill. That's right. And at the end of the track-by-track on Raising Hell, all three of us are going to give our final judgment on which album we feel is the superior album of 1986. It's going to be amazing. One, two, three, five. All right. Well, Dave, get us started on the history of rap and what we need to know before we can make our final judgment here. Well, I'm going to pick up the story in the 20th century this time. I'm not going to take you back to the 1800s. Okay, good. The birth of hip-hop. And the story we're telling today is a tale of two Jamaicans. On April 16th, 1955, in Kingston, Jamaica, Keith and Nettie Campbell gave birth to the first of their six children, a little boy named Clive. A little over two years later, in October of 1957, in Jamaica, Queens, Daniel and Evelyn Simmons gave birth to their second son, Russell. Now, Daniel and Evelyn each held a pair of degrees from Howard University, and they had moved to Queens when Daniel had gotten a job as a public school administrator. And just a few years later, in 1964, they moved to the slightly better neighborhood, neighboring neighborhood of Hollis, Queens. And just a couple of weeks later, in November of 1964, they gave birth to their third son, Joseph Simmons. So that's where the tale of two Jamaicas begins. But the Simmons family doesn't really come into play for another 10 years or so. But in 1967, the Campbell family moved from Kingston, Jamaica to the Bronx. And they moved into a tenement building 
called Sedgwick Towers. So just for the record, in 1964, that was Joseph's first Christmas in Hollis. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> that is exactly right. Okay, okay, good, good. Okay, but if you go back to the Campbell family, in 1967, the Campbells moved from Kingston, Jamaica to the Bronx to a tenement building called Sedgwick Towers. Okay. And this is when young Clive, their, the first of their children, was 12 years old. When Clive was in high school, he, he'd only grown up to be about five foot eight, but he had turned into a real sturdy guy. He was buff, he was strong, and he was physically dominant on the basketball court. And because of his physical strength, his basketball teammates gave him the nickname of Hercules. Okay. A couple of years later, one of his sisters named Cindy, she needed some extra money for clothes. So they tried to figure out a way to raise a little bit of money. And Clive remembered when he was living in Jamaica, they have dance halls in Jamaica. I don't know if it's traditional to Jamaica or if it's just kind of traditional to maybe like the equivalent of their party scene. And so he borrowed his dad's sound system set it up in the community room of this tenement building and they decided to throw a party to raise money so Cindy can get some clothes. I'm with you so far. As a spoiler alert, it was a huge success, but it was enough fun that they kept doing it and kept doing it. And the reputation of these parties began to grow and the crowd started to get bigger. And so the nickname that his basketball teammates had given him and started calling himself DJ Cool Herc. Okay, so that is probably right there why we have the tradition of rappers and DJs giving themselves nicknames. Okay. And in 1972, he discovered, this is what I love about the history of hip-hop, is that the origins are very specific and they're very known. In 1972, he came up with the idea of setting up two turntables at the same time so that he can cut quickly between two records. This had never really been done before. Okay. And what he had learned from studying the crowd was that the favorite part of any song they played was when it broke down into like a percussion break in the middle of the song. So he decided, what if I only played the percussion breaks, if I only played the beats from these breaks, and what he did was he, what he would cue up the percussion breaks, the break beats on each yeah. turntable, and when, it would, and when the break would come to an end on one, he'd play the other turntable. Okay. Makes By sense. doing this, he could extend the good part. Okay. What he discovered was have two copies of the same record. And by cueing the beginning of the breakup and have it ready to go by the time it's ending on the other record, he can go back and forth. He could extend that break beat, as they called it, indefinitely. This is what DJ Cool Herc was famous for. He came up with a routine that would cut between three different records and the very first merry-go-round routine he came up with included turn it up and set it loose by james brown bongo rock by the incredible bongo band and the mexican by babe ruth these all three had these percussion breaks in them and he would just rotate between the three of them and keep them going for a long time and the crowd would just go nuts and go nuts and go nuts this right. was the very beginning of what became hip-hop awesome Awesome. Okay. So by playing these extended break beats, the crowd would jump in and start dancing. And the longer that he kept this thing going, the more they would dance and the crazier their dance moves would get. And so these people that were dancing during these breaks, these were the break dancers. This is how you get the term break dancing. The break dancer. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I get it. I get I it. it. Okay. I love it. He had a regular group of guys who were like particularly acrobatic and inventive on the dance floor. He called them his break boys, which became B-boys. 
So that's why any any hip hopper is now known as a b boy. That's so awesome. So now you're coming between a twin records or between two turntables. You've got break dancers and you've got b boys. Wow. So in 1974, there was a movie that came out called Earthquake. Are you familiar with it? No, I don't know this. Okay, so the movie came out called Earthquake in 1974, which is for that movie, they created something called the Sin Surround Sound. It was specifically to give the audience an enhanced experience so they could actually feel the earthquake and they had to use special speakers. They designed and created special speakers for this. And all of the DJs who were now playing in not just the gymnasium or whatever, but also playing in the park said, if we can recreate these speakers, we can have the loudest speakers around. And so they reverse engineered it, figured out how to make the earthquake speakers. And that's how they got the name earthquake speakers. Wow. Cool. <laughs> and then they would have dancers who were like dancing on top of the speakers. And I've seen it. They, they will stop the music and say, hey, get off the speakers. <laughs> <laughs> so in Jamaica, there's this tradition called dance hall toasting, which is very similar to what we would know as rapping, where someone is taking a microphone and speaking over some music that's playing back with the purpose of exciting the crowd and entertaining them. And so something cool Herc added to his routine. What, with all this break dancing going on with the B-Boys, is that he started encouraging the crowd and hyping them up by grabbing a mic and starting to give real simple rhymes that was on beat with the, with the break loop that he was playing. But what he soon found out, because, you know, keep in mind, all he had was two turntables. He didn't have a modern system with a, with a, fade, a crossfader or a switch or a mixer or anything. He was kind of doing all this manually and trying to stay on time with it all. And it was a little too much to try to add the the toasting. Yeah. So what he did is he, he delegated that to a friend of his. And that is how Coke LaRock became history's first MC. And so in, in the Jamaican toasting halls, they were known as master of ceremonies. So Coke LaRock is the name of the, the first MC in hip hop. Now we mentioned Scott LaRock in the Beastie Boys episodes and fans of 80s rap may recognize the name Scott LaRock from Boogie Down Productions. Both those guys know their history because both of those names are an homage to Coke LaRock, the very first rapper. This is all happening at Sedgwick Towers. This is right there at Herc's home. And yeah. all, all this innovation is happening within 72 and 73. As a matter of fact, according to the PBS documentary series, History Detectives, they were able to pinpoint the exact birth of rap. It was on August 11th, <laughs> 1973. In the community room of Sedgwick Towers at 1520 Sedgwick Avenue, right there in the community room, two turntables, extending the break dancing with rapping on the microphone. August 11th, 1973, rap is born, and it's all from DJ Cool Hurt. Hey, every time, every time you say two, tur two turntables, I'm like, and a microphone. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just keep wanting to say two turntables and a microphone. As it turns out, Cool Herc would not keep up with all the innovations that would quickly come uh, in the following decade. But he is known as the originator. As a matter okay. of fact, he never put out any recorded material until 2019. He did his first album. Really? But, yes. Wow. But he's always been known and recognized and respected as the originator of rap. As a matter of fact, 
in the year 2007, the state of New York officially declared the Sedgwick Building to be the birthplace of hip-hop, and it has since been nominated for inclusion on the National Registry of Historic Places. That's fantastic, man. So I'd mentioned that he did not, he did not really keep up with the innovators that would come. But what happened was, here we are, 73, going into 74, and his parties were growing. They were growing in size, and they were growing in reputation. He began to gain status just through, like, his name being whispered on the streets. And you have to understand that in the, in the 70s, especially the first half of the 70s, the Bronx was a scary place. In 1973, there was a member of the Black Spades gang whose name was Lance Taylor, and he went to his first Cool Herc party. And while there, he had this vision of what he could do to make the Bronx a safer place. Now, it would be a couple of years before he was able to realize this vision. In the meantime, there was this kid named Joseph Sadler, who had been born in Barbados, but had moved to the Bronx, and he had become a regular attendee at Herc's parties. And as a matter of fact, Herc had kind of taken him under his wing as sort of an acolyte. And Joseph Sadler had been to a vocational high school, and he was able to take some of his mechanical, electrical engineering skills that he had learned there, and he built the very first Q monitor, which you could add to the system of the two turntables as a way to preview the entrance point of your next record so he could be more precise with that. That was an innovation that allowed for, for more precision in the DJ's routine. So this innovation gave him the edge over Cool Herc with this with this Q monitor added to the system. So he went out and, and began throwing his own parties under the name of Grandmaster Flash. Oh... There you go. Wow, that's awesome, man. <laughs> so this is a period of intense creation and innovation. This is all brand new. So a lot of people are jumping on board with this idea and they're trying new things. Grandmaster Flash had his own disciple, his own apprentice, whose name was Theodore Livingston. So Theodore was just trying to learn how to do all this stuff. He was learning it from Grandmaster Flash. And one day he was up in his bedroom working with two turntables, just practicing, trying to figure it out. And uh, and his mom busted in and said, what's that noise? <laughs> and, and so it kind of scared him. He kind of jumped in. He put his hand down on the record to stop it because he had to talk to his mom. And when he put his hand down on it, it kind of slipped under the needle and it made this cool little zipping sound. And he uh -huh. goes, whoa, what was that? And he did it again. And then he went back and forth a few more times. And then he started doing it in rhythm. And that is how scratching, the technique of scratching, was invented That's by accident That's because awesome. Theodore Livingston's mother scared him. <laughs> You're bringing so, it strong tonight, man. You, you really are. <laughs> I love it. And Keep so going. Theodore Livingston is now better known as Grand Wizard Theodore. Yes. And so he's one of the big names from the 70s, and he's credited with inventing scratching. Wow. So 1975, Cool Herc is still throwing his parties. And Lance Taylor, if you remember Lance Taylor, he had had that vision in 1973 of how to make the Bronx a safer place. Okay. He had been running with the Black Spades, which is one of the more violent gangs in the Bronx. But by 1975, Lance had begun DJing, and he quickly earned the reputation for playing ultra-rare break beats. Okay? okay, so that's what they called these percussion breaks that they were always looking for. Because that's just the part they wanted. They wanted that part and nothing else. They could just play that. Well, it quickly got to the point where everybody was familiar with the common ones. And so he was looking for more obscure records. 
to reveal beats that no one had heard before. And so he specialized in finding the most obscure songs, primarily from funk and soul, but from a wide array. So with his heightened influence that he had from running these parties, Lance Taylor was able to successfully realize his vision of how to make the Bronx a safer place. And he basically co-opted the, the Black Spades and turned them into, he renamed them the Zulu Nation. And he began to call himself Africa Bambata. Yeah. And he used, he used hip hop and rap and creative expression as a way to channel the kids on the street, channel their energy in a positive way in order to move them away from crime and away from violence and just steer them into these creative outlets. Africa Bambada, he created basically that DJ uh, virtue of crate digging, where you just go looking for the most obscure record that's going to have a cool beat that no one's heard before. Which is how he happened to be able to hear Cookie Puss. Is that right? It has to be. Right? Yeah, probably so. I mean, talk about an obscure album. Yeah. Three white kids from Brooklyn. Yeah. Yo, I want to talk to Cookie Puss, man. <laughs> Cookie Puss. Okay. So th those are the three giants. Cool Herc, Grandmaster Flash, and Africa Bambata. They are the giants of hip-hop. If you're going to have a Mount Rushmore, those are three of the faces right there. Okay. But what this created in the 70s was this breakbeat culture, this DJ party culture. There was something new. It was just kind of had, had risen kind of grassroots. And people were sneaking recorders into these parties and making these bootleg mixtapes. And they were selling them on the street. And the, the DJs, usually, they didn't know anything about it. But they were selling these mixtapes on the street. And these served to kind of spread the gospel. And so kids outside of Manhattan, outside the Bronx, in the other boroughs, these mixtapes kind of made their way out to the suburbs. And so this idea was catching on. And it was all just organic. And I, I just find all of that very cool. That There was this new way of playing records that basically turned the DJ into the star, into the entertainer, where it was all based on taking pre-existing material and remixing it in a new way. So it's basically editing for entertainment. It's live looping, live editing for entertainment. I've, I've always found that extremely fascinating. And I have to say it impacted me professionally, impacted my career because I, I'm, I'm a professional video producer. I'm a video editor. And that charge I get from taking different material, raw material, and crafting something new out of it is the same thing that interested me about hip-hop and about these early days in the Bronx in the 70s with so much innovation and creativity going on all at the same time. Okay, so these were still largely house parties or block parties, but the scene was getting too big. This was something new and something different. And so what was happening is in the cold months, they were actually starting to book venues. They would rent out clubs or rent out these venues to throw their parties, which now these were becoming events that needed to be promoted. In the summertime, they would just go out to the park and they could they could plug their turntables up to, to the telephone pole and just start doing their thing and the crowd would gather. And so these it created uh, it was a snowball effect of so many people trying to learn the secrets of this of this new trade and so you had all these DJs coming up one of the more prominent DJs of the 70s from this new breed of DJ was someone known as DJ Hollywood and so you have to understand that at this time rapping right MCs were they were strictly in a supporting role 
the, the DJ was the clear star, and the MC was really more like a hype man. He, he wasn't really trying to perform a song. He was just trying to get the crowd going. So it was very simplistic party rhymes, you know, like throw your hands in the air, wave them like you just don't care. And it was nothing more complicated than that. Like on and on until the break of dawn. Well, there was this DJ named DJ Hollywood. In the vein of rapping like that, he came up with wait, the wait, rhyme. Wait. He was the inventor. Wait, wait, wait. Rapping like this and like this and like that? <laughs> like this, like that, it's like this, y'all. <laughs> Please do that lots and lots. <laughs> okay, I got you. Keep going. Okay, so so it was DJ Hollywood who, in the vein of doing these type of simplistic, improvised rhymes, he came up with the rhyme, hip, hop, hip to the hippity, hip, hip, hoppy, you don't stop rocking the bang, bang, boogie, say up, jump the boogie to the rhythm of the boogie beat. And... That caught on. So that hip hop, hippie to the hippity hip hop. Finally, this movement, this new culture had a name and it was called hip hop. And it came from DJ Hollywood's improvised rhyme that night. Nice. Nice. It's great. Dude, you're hitting grand slam after grand slam. Keep going. So this initial period from 1973 at Sedgwick Towers up through about 78, 1978, this era was hip hop 1.0. This was the original scene. This was the grassroots organic creation of something new. And it all started in the Bronx. Well, you talked about DJ Hollywood and it was around this time. You talked about 78 is around 77. He had a close friend named Eddie Chiba. Yep. And this is, this is kind of where your two Jamaicas meet because Eddie Chiba, DJ Hollywood, they would influence each other's styles, grow from each other. And one night, a guy who you had mentioned earlier, who was born in Jamaica, Queens, happened to have dropped out of college and be trying to look for something to do. And he came across Eddie Chiba and he said, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. That was Russell Simmons. That's like the... uh Blues Brothers uh, having that moment in the church where the light hits them and they start doing cartwheels. (laughs) Yeah, so what had happened was in in 1975, Russell Simmons was out of high school and he had gotten uh, busted for smoking pot. And his dad said, nope, you're going to college. And he kicked him out and he went over to Harlem and he enrolled at City College of New York. Okay. While there, he met a friend named, he made friends with a guy named Rudy Toppin. And Rudy was into party promotion. He was plugged into this new breed of DJ type of party scene. And he was one of these guys that was going around promoting these club events that had started growing out of these house parties. And so he brought Russell along to help him out. And so this was this was Russell's first hustle. He was into party promoting. And by the way, it was during this time, Rudy observed Russell's high energy work ethic and gave him the nickname of Rush. So Russ has the nickname of Rush. Okay. And so there was this one night in 1977 at the Charles where they walk in and Eddie Chiba is rapping over a looped break or the looped intro to Flashlight by Parliament. Just keep your bar and stay on the floor. We're going to do a little like it, Eel. We continue on with the music, y'all. It's time for you to be real. This was the I See the Light moment. And in that moment, Russ had uh, he got hit up the side of the head and he said this is the future this is my future this is something real and his first instinct was how am I going to make money off of it yep, he right. recognized 
before anybody else, he recognized that this was marketable and that people could get paid. Uh-huh. The people well, that were there in the 1.0 stage, they were just there. It was a new way to party. You know, it was just a DJ playing records at a club. He was just putting a twist on it. But Russell was the first person to see that this could be monetized and that this could be marketed. He was the first businessman, the visionary that could turn this all into something viable. He decided he was going to get into his own promoter. He quit working with Rudy and he started promoting his own. He was friends with the program director at the college radio station, the college where he was attending. The program director's name was Curtis Walker. And so they began promoting their own events. So you have to understand that Russell was the visionary who took hip hop from these ad hoc parties to like organized concerts and ticketed events and that kind of thing. He was kind of the trailblazer in kind of finding places that would take these acts and then a circuit developed where you could just kind of make the, you could just make the rounds booking uh, your act. And one of these other promoters during this same time, one of his competing promoters was a guy by the name of Junior Rames. Now you probably haven't heard of Junior Rames. Okay. But you've heard of his brother, actor Ving Rames. Wow. Nice. That is a nice nugget right there. <laughs> so <laughs> so they were booking all these events and they were developing this circuit and they were promoting parties. Russell was the businessman, but Curtis Walker was the star. He was the rapper on stage that people were coming to see. And he went by the name of Curtis Blow. Mr. Curtis Blow. You know where he got blow? From cocaine. <laughs> right. So, what? Wait a minute. What? Eddie Eddie Chiba. Chiba is another name for marijuana. And they're like, well, Curtis Walker, that's no good. What do we got a drug that's better than marijuana? About Curtis Blow. <laughs> Wait, keep in mind the first MC ever was Coke LaRock. <laughs> <laughs> So this was working. The first party, the first party that Russell threw on his own was 800 people showed up for it and it only held 600 people. So he, he was flush with cash. He, he, he made the money. He was happy. He was thrilled to death. So he and Curtis were in business and he would go home. Russell would go home to Queens. He'd come in with stacks of cash late at night, which made a huge impression on his little brother, Joseph. Little Joey was about 13 years old and uh -huh. he was amazed. That big bro was coming in with stacks of cash and all these stories about working in the clubs with these rappers and DJs that Joey was listening to on mixtapes that people were passing around at school. So but by, by 1978, Curtis Blow needed a DJ and Russ knew exactly who to come to for the job because his little brother, Joey, who was just 13, had been chomping at the bit for months to be able to join him. And he was learning and practicing at home how to work the turntables. And so finally, they tapped him to be the DJ for Curtis Blow. So with Run DMC, whenever you hear him referred to as DJ Run, you yep. might wonder, why, he's not the DJ, so why is his name DJ Run? It's because he started out as Curtis Blow's DJ in 1978. As a 13-year-old. As a 13-year-old. His first night on stage ever in his life. He's 13 years old, and he's on stage with Curtis Blow and Grandmaster Flash. That's incredible, man. Son of Curtis Blow. Son of Curtis Blow. I heard that he got the name Run because he was a fast worker. Is that, is that the... Yep. Okay. Just like his big brother, Rush, Run had a high-energy personality and work rate, and they say he was always running off at the mouth. 
There you go. Yeah. That so, seems about right. So he was uh, DJ Run. He was billed as the son of Curtis Blow. And they, they spent several years doing this act. And Run would rap. He would take his turn on the microphone. And so he was still a kid who's in junior high. And he was spending his weekends at the clubs performing. So here we are in 1979. And there was a writer by the name of Rocky Ford who had just written a piece for wait, Billboard. Wait, wait. Rocky Four? That's the one where Rocky takes on the Russian. <laughs> you killed Apollo. <laughs> I must break you. Rocky Sorry. Ford. Rocky Ford, okay. <laughs> Rocky Ford had just written a story for Billboard on this new breakbeat culture that had taken over, taken root in the Bronx. Okay. And he was taking the train through New York when a flyer for a Rush Promotions party caught his eye. It just caught his eye. He just noticed it. But when he got off the train, he saw a little kid hustling around, running around, putting up flyers for parties, and it also had the Rush name on it. And so this inspired him. He's always looking for his next story to write. So he decided he would write a story about who this promoter was because he appeared to be a big deal. Well, first of all, the little kid he saw tacking up posters in a hurry, that was Joseph Simmons putting yeah. up flyers for his big brother. But he was able to track him down at his offices and met with him. And he was inspired to write this story because Rush Entertainment appeared to be the biggest mover and shaker, you know, on, on the scene. And so they met and there was an exchange of ideas. So Rocky got his interview with Russell, but in exchange, he taught Russell about the music business and how the music industry works and how the record business works. And so that became, that was obviously a very important step in Russell's life, but Russell had a vision for his life and for his future. He believed in it and he had, he was at a point where he had to prove it to his dad. He had to prove that I'm not making a mistake and this, this is something legit and viable. And so he went all out promoting this one big party in Harlem. This was going to be the show that proved it all to his dad. And guess how many people showed up? Nobody. Zero. Yikes. Nobody. His worst failure as a promoter. Literally zero people showed up. Oh my gosh. That's terrible. He had rented the venue. He had paid for the advertising and nobody showed up. It broke him. Russell's career was dead. He didn't know what he was going to tell his dad. Right. Because it was the end of the line. He had a great idea. It lasted a couple of years with Curtis Blow, but it was over. He didn't know what to tell his dad. So he called his mom and his mom, who who had also had a good job uh, high up in uh, New York City Parks and Rec, gave him $2,000. And it's only because of that $2,000 that he was able to continue. And so with that money, he decided he was no longer going to go into party promotion and that instead he would move into artist management. Okay. And so with this decision made, he went back to Rocky Ford, the, the billboard writer who had told him about the music business and told him what he wanted to do. And Rocky had already been talking with an ad exec at Billboard Magazine named J.B. Moore. And they had decided they were going to do something that had never been done before. They were going to produce a rap record. And then and they looked at Russ and they're like, well, maybe, maybe Russ is our guy. Nobody in hip hop was thinking about making their own record. They were taking other people's records and playing them and dancing to them. And that's all it was. But Russell and Rocky and JB Moore decided they were going to make a record. And this is kind of cool. The rapper they had in mind for their record was Eddie Chiba. Well, Russell has Curtis Blow as his one and only client. Well, Russell wants in on that, but they want Eddie Chiba. So Russell takes them to a show where both Eddie Chiba and Curtis Blow are performing on the bill. And it's, and it's all on Curtis Blow's shoulders. 
It's like, this is on you, buddy. This is your chance. Uh-huh. Put on the performance of your life. These guys want to make a record. You've got to blow Eddie Chiba off the stage. Step up. Make it happen. So like some kind of movie moment with everything on the line, Curtis Blow takes the stage that night. You can hear the theme music playing in the background. And he blows Eddie Chiba out of the sky. And that is why today most people have probably heard of Curtis Blow, but most people have probably not heard of Eddie Chiba. They still haven't made their money, right? Russ is still broke. He's living on this. He's, he's squeezing by on this money that his mom gave him. But he's already pioneered organizing hip hop into organized shows. He's already pioneered a circuit of venues for performers. And he may, maybe he didn't realize it yet, but he had already pioneered the idea of managing or representing rappers. And now he was ready to pioneer the producing of actual rap records. Now, their idea, Rocky Ford and J.B. Moore's idea, was to do a novelty song. They decided they would do a song about Santa Claus. And they wanted to make it a rap record. Now, that's a million miles away from all this vital, energetic, creative, awesome stuff happening in the clubs. But they're trying to find a way to present it to the public. So it's this nice little novelty comedy record about Santa Claus. But then something went wrong on the way to the studio. Somebody beat him to the punch. I said a hip so rapper's delight was a massive hit for a group called the sugar hill gang this record blew up and is considered the first rap record in history it was massive everybody had this record it sold 14 million units this wow. one song wow yeah here's the problem Guess how many people had heard of the Sugar Hill Gang before that record came out? Zero. Nobody. Right. Nobody. Guess how many gigs they had performed in the clubs? Zero. Zero. Had they even existed before? No. They were purely a creation of the record label. They were a studio act. They were absolutely fake. They were not authentic. They didn't come from the scene. They didn't come from the clubs. As a matter of fact, they stole well-known routines from other people and put it into their song. <laughs> they were a boy band. They were new kids on the block. <laughs> wow. They were, wow. So everybody in America, right, is loving this song. It blew up. But everybody in the Bronx, everybody around the New York area that knew what real hip-hop was like, they hated these guys. They hated them. They were posers. They were fake. Russell hated them not because they were fake he hated them because they beat him to the punch and they got their record out first so they pushed forward russell ford and moore pushed forward with their plan and in time for christmas 1979 they released curtis blows christmas rapping hit it the second ever rap record now that music was performed by a couple of session players named Larry Smith, who was playing bass. Trevor Gale was a, was the man on the drums, and the guitarist was a guy named Eddie Martinez. Larry Smith is a name I recognize. Isn't Larry the one that produced the first two Run DMC albums? Yes. Okay. Okay. So now they have their record. Okay. They have Christmas rapping, but how do they get it out? They need a label. So Russ pulls off this ingenious scam. First of all, he sends copies out to these key influential DJs around the city. 
Uh-huh. Then he writes up a bunch of fake orders for Christmas wrapping and sends it to Polygram. Like he has a Polygram Records order sheet to fill out. And he just fills it out with all these fake names, everybody requesting Christmas wrapping from Polygram. They Polygram get all these orders in. And they don't they're like, we number one, we don't have it. Number two, what is it? You yeah. know, this we don't know what this record is. But they it, it, they fell exactly into Russell's plans. It, it made them curious. And they, they're like, well, clearly there's a demand for this record. Look how many people want it. Brilliant. And so <laughs> they tracked down the producer and said, hey, hey, we need to sign you. We want to we want to distribute this record. And that's how they got the record deal for Christmas wrapping. That is the fadeaway swish, if ever there was. One. <laughs> That's genius, man. This guy is a marketing genius. Yeah, he he combines street hustle with college education and a visionary business sense. He's tricky. And trick. <laughs> he's tricky. <laughs> <laughs> and he tricked Polygram Records into signing Curtis Blow. Now Curtis Blow becomes the first rapper in history signed to a major record label. Incredible. Brilliant. He quickly followed that up in January of 1980 with his second song, The Breaks. Now, The Breaks is a record that anticipated what Grandmaster Flash would do a few years later with The Message, which is basically rapping about how hard life can be in the city. But with these two records, they were both hit records. And so Curtis Blow, at this point, 7980, he becomes rap's first official star. Clap your hands, everybody, if you got And with these hit songs, he has to hit the road. And so he hits the road with DJ Run. What they learned here was that rap was very economical, right? All you needed was a record player and a microphone. There's very little overhead. These shows cost basically nothing to put on, so they were making a lot of money. It was, it was very profitable. But with every show, Joseph Simmons, he would take his turn on the microphone. So he was 14, 15 years old. And he was rapping every night in front of Curtis Blow's crowds. So it was during this time of Curtis Blow's success, uh, early on his Polygram uh, career, and he's on the road a lot with with Joseph Simmons as his DJ. Russ is growing his client list. He's got more than just Curtis Blow now. He's signing up several acts, one of which is Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Okay. And in 1981, they had a song called Genius Rap. This proved to be their biggest hit, and Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, even though they appear in Crush Groove, the movie, they never really had a big rapping career. Although, Dr. Jekyll, also known as Andre Harrell, would go on to be a huge record executive and eventually end up being the CEO of Motown in the 90s. Wow. Okay, nice. Started off 1981 with genius rap that they had landed with a small indie label that had just opened in 81, but had lost all their money and nothing had hit. It was called Profile Records and they took Genius Rap and they got a hit out of it. And Genius Rap saved Profile Records. And that'll prove important uh, in a few minutes. So while all this stuff is going on, while, you know, Run is being introduced as the son of Curtis Blow, kids around the Bronx are just, I mean, each of those boroughs is kind of a world in and of itself, right? And so they're, they're getting... They're getting these mixtapes in, but everybody's fallen in love with this new style of music. And there's this kid named Daryl who is a big comic book fan. Like he obsesses over he's a comic huge books. Huge comic book fan. Hugely, yes. That, like that's all he does. He's he's an introvert. He's got big thick glasses. He kind of gets picked on at school. And so all he wants to do is go home and read his comic books until he starts hearing this music. And he and his older brother really fall in love with this music. And they say, "Man, where can we where can we get some money so that we can get our own turntables?" 
And his brother's like, well, why don't we sell your comic books? And he's like, but I like my comic books. Right. And he's like, well, yeah, we'll sell the old ones that you've read already. And he's like, okay, I'll keep the good ones. We'll, we'll sell my old comic books. And they sell it. They buy the turntable. And then Big Brother says, now, don't you touch this when I'm not in the house. <laughs> <laughs> so he, so um, he tries to emulate the the guys. In, in, you know, before he was trying to emulate the superheroes, he would have his, you know, he'd have his playtime emulating the superheroes. Now he is trying to write poetry, trying to write raps so he can emulate those guys from uh, the other boroughs who are now doing this music that is brand new and on the scene. So uh, Daryl and Joseph had been going to the same elementary school since kindergarten, but right. because Daryl's birthday was in May, he was actually one grade ahead of Joseph. So they were never in the same grade or same class in elementary school. So although they had gone to school there together, they weren't really friends. But wow. at this point, at high school age, as it happens, with Ron on the road with Curtis Blow a lot, they both end up joining a local uh, basketball league. They end up on the same team, and they renew their acquaintance. They recognize each other from elementary school, and so that this is where they really became friends, was playing basketball together. So, yes, Daryl was an introvert. He liked to stay at home, but he had discovered this music, and he discovered that his friend Joe was a part of the scene, was actually in Manhattan and in the Bronx playing at these clubs. And he's on some of these mixtapes that he's listening to, and it blew him away. Both Daryl and Joe like to play basketball, right? And in these boroughs, there's really just, especially in the Bronx, there's one basketball goal that you can go and play on. And a friend of theirs decides, hey, I'm going to slam dunk on this goal. <laughs> and he breaks the goal. And so now they're without a goal to play on. And Daryl and Joe are like, well, what are we going to do? And Daryl says, hey, why don't you come over to my house? I've got a basketball goal at my house. We'll play over there, right? And so they go over to Daryl's house and they play basketball. They work up a sweat. Joe's thirsty. He's like, hey, man, can we get a drink of water? And Daryl's like, man, I'm not really supposed to have people in the house. No my parents, company. No company when the parents aren't here. He's like, man, I'm dying of thirst here. Like, all right, come on and come in. And when he comes in, Joe sees the turntables that the comic book money had bought. And he's like, whoa, what have you got going here? And he's like, oh, you know, yeah, my brother and I got these and I do this a little bit. So you just do the turntables, you just do the DJ. And Daryl's like, oh, yeah, yeah, I do it. I That's all I do. But sure enough, Joe finds his notebook and he starts reading through. He's like, did you write this? Did you write these rhymes? And Daryl's like, yeah. And he's like, listen, listen, my brother, when I graduate, is going to let me record a record. When that happens, I want you to record with me. I want you to be the guy who records with me on that record. And Daryl's like, yeah, okay, whatever, your brother. Yeah, whatever. It's only later that he finds out who Daryl's, or it's only later that he finds out who Joe's brother really is. Yeah, so Daryl was a homebody. He was an introvert. He was probably a nerd. And he he was his parents were, and particularly his mother, were overly protective of him. So here he is living in Hollis, Queens, and he's going to a private school for high school. So he's wearing a uniform mm -hmm. and he's wearing these big thick glasses. So he's prime target for bullies. And he's got to walk the city blocks to get to his house. And so he's used to hiding his glasses, like when he's Coming up on people on the street, he takes his glasses off, puts them in his pocket, and tries to get by them without any trouble. And when he's in the house, he's 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 content to just stay there and read 
and look out the window. So after this happens and, and Joe's like, hey, you've got some good rhymes. You need to come with us. You know, I'm going to these shows. Joseph was always trying to get Daryl to come with him. And Daryl would wanted to go. But his, 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 his mom wouldn't let him leave Queens. So it's like, he asked his mom, please, but she still said no. <laughs> and so he was all upset and pouty looking out the window while his friend Joe was off in the Bronx somewhere rapping on stage. And he's sitting there just reading his comic books. So here's the thing about Daryl. He was really shy and he would never imagine himself rapping in public. And what would happen is they had set up their turntables in the attic. And so they called their attic space the lab. And Daryl and Joe would spend all their time every day in the lab, just messing around, scratching on records, writing rhymes, rapping back and forth. And they just did this every day for a long time. And this is where they developed their rapid fire exchange, switching between lines, switching words within a line, that kind of thing. This is where they developed that real tight uh, ability to perform together. And it was during this time that Daryl, came up with his first name for himself, which was Grandmaster Get High. <laughs> and then later, he would soon change his name to Easy D. But what was what was amazing, what blew Joe out of the water and made him a big believer in Daryl, was that this meek, mild-mannered Clark Kent, who didn't want to get picked on, would go up in the lab and come up with the most vicious, tough guy rhymes that could just blow anybody off the street. When he was rapping, he transformed into the Superman version of himself. But Joe couldn't get him to perform anywhere. So across the street or nearby, you had two, well, they called it Two-Fifths Park. It was on 205th Street. And this was the park that, that was the scene for all the parties in Hollis that were going on. So these, DJ, these kids that were figuring out how to be a DJ by listening to these mixtapes or maybe going to a club show in the Bronx, they'd come back and they'd try these things. They were hooking up their turntables in Two-Fifths Park and throw in their own parties. And so there was a competition among DJs to see who could draw the biggest crowd and who can keep the, the party going the, the best. And at this time, the best DJ in Hollis playing at Two-Fist Park was a guy named Jazzy Jace, who was a member of the Two-Fist Down crew. And so every once in a while, Joe could get Daryl out of his house. He wasn't allowed to leave Queens, but they'd go down to the park when the parties were going on, especially when Jazzy Jace was on the turntables. And all these kids were just eager to get on the mic and rap. They wanted to rap. They wanted to rap. Joe was bringing his own microphone. He's like, just just plug it in. Just let me rap. He would. He'd blow everybody away. But this is the scene that kind of created that competition among rappers. You were no longer just praising the DJ, but you were also trying to convince people how good you were and that you were, you were the best person on the microphone. And it was this scene where DJ Run really honed his skills. But there's his friend, Daryl, hanging in the back of the crowd, not saying a word. Now, Joe knows what Daryl's got inside him, but nobody else knows. So Jazzy Jace, whose real name is Jason Mizell, he was like the tough guy. He was a street guy. Okay, yeah. Daryl and Joe were both stable-loving homes, comfortable middle-class existence, good, normal, safe lives. And they were considered by the guys in the park to be soft. Right. And Jason was somebody who was hard. He was a tough guy. He was from the streets. He was the kind of guy that was friends with everybody. He was friends with the straight A students and the nerds, but he was also friends with the guys on the corner dealing drugs, the tough guys that you wanted to stay away from. He got to be friends with them too. So Jason had cred. And so when, and he knew Joe from school, they were in the same grade together at school. So when Daryl and Joe would come over to the park, Jason was the guy looking out for him. Nobody messed with Daryl and Joe because Jason said so. 
And if Jazzy Jace doesn't want you messing with those guys, then you know they must be cool. During this time in the early 80s that Joseph is continuing to bug Russell to make a record. He wants to make a record. He wants to make a record. And Russell keeps putting him off. But in 1982, Larry Smith and Trevor Gale and Eddie Martinez, the three guys who had helped perform the music, the session players who had performed on Christmas rapping, they formed their own band called Orange Crush. And that's Crush spelled with a K. And they were signed by Rush Management. And the biggest song they put out was called Action. It was sung by Allison Williams, who was uh, also a Rush client. But what's significant about it is that it had a beat that Russ particularly really liked. So in 82, Sugar Hill Records' run at the top of the business was collapsing because they had signed a bunch of acts after the success of Rapper's Delight, such as Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five and Melly Mel and all these kind of guys. And, and so during this time, CBS, right, Columbia Records, approached Sugar Hill for a... For a like to be their partner for distribution. There's a major label coming around wanting to sign them up. But but then Columbia ended up backing out of that. They were kind of scared off by some shady business practices they were seeing. And this would later be a factor in them wanting to sign Def Jam because they were still looking for a rap label, but they didn't want to be in business with Sugar Hill. But they did. Sugar Hill did sign a major distribution deal with MCA Records. The problem was that deal was brokered by a guy from the mob and very quickly that relationship with MCA records started to fall apart and they were in legal trouble and they were find themselves in litigation in court and this is why Sugar Hill kind of fell off the map it created a space in the market for somebody else to step up and so this this is the landscape we're in when Trevor Gale the drummer for Orange Crush comes to Russ and says I've written a rap song I want to make a record out of it well, Russ didn't care about, he didn't care about this guy's little, okay, great, you wrote some rhymes, whatever. He's like, okay, sure. You know what? Joey has been bugging me to record a record. So I'm going to, so go talk to Joey. He can rap this for you. But Joey's like, cool, I want to do it. Let me bring my friend Daryl. Russell says, no, I don't like Daryl. So what are you talking about? Russ saw nothing in Daryl that gave him any confidence that yeah. he could be a recording star. He was like, he didn't like his style. He didn't like his voice. He didn't like his mannerisms, personality. He was too withdrawn. We're not using Daryl. You can get over it. So Joseph doesn't like that, but they record anyway. They do a demo of a song called Street Kid. And it is a solo DJ run song that they record. And they proceed to then shop around to record labels to find somebody who will take care of it for them. And nobody buys it. Nobody wants it. So they're dead in the water. And Joseph is dejected, and he feels like, that's it. I had my shot. Now, I'm not going to be a rapper. I'm not going to be I'm not gonna be making records. I got to find something else to do. Meanwhile, Daryl has enrolled at St. John's University. <laughs> so, by this time, it's the fall of 1982. They seemed like they had a good run. It was fun, but you got to get on with life. And so, Daryl and Joe and Jason all end up enrolling at different colleges in the fall of 82. Daryl is at St. John's University studying to be a business major. Yep. And Joe, he is enrolled at LaGuardia Community College to study mortuary science. Wow. <laughs> wow. I guess he decided that if he was going to slay all suckers who perpetrate, <laughs> uh, that's good. So he's, he's, he's going to class to be a mortician. Uh -huh. Okay. 
bummed out about his record falling flat. At this time, there's a hit song by Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five called The Message. It's like a jungle sometimes. It makes me wonder how I keep from going under. So this song was a huge hit and it painted a bleak story of life in New York City. And Run was inspired to do something similar. So he came up with the idea of a song called It's Like That. which just tells the story of, of how times can be tough. And so he calls up his friend Daryl and says, I want to, I have this idea for a song, like kind of like the message. It's going to be called It's Like That. Let's see what we can do with this. Okay. And so Daryl, daydreaming in English class at St. John's University, writes the lyrics to It's Like That. He shows it to Joe. Joe loves it. They take it to Russ. Russ looks at it and says, this is great. I want to record this right away. Considering that they had tried this solo song, Street Kid, with Joe, and it had gone nowhere, he finally relents and says, okay, fine, Daryl can be on the record with you. And so they recruit Larry Smith from Orange Crush to be the producer on the session. And they go into the studio, and Daryl and Joe record It's Like That. They record the song, and now they need to find a record label that'll carry it. And they shop it around again, no biters. They, they shop it around to majors. Nobody's interested. They can't find anybody that will buy it. And, and Russell's desperate at this point. You know, he's he's trying to place this record for his brother. He remembers that Genius Rap by Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde had saved Profile Records. Yeah. So he calls them up, and this is a struggling, small, tiny, little, independent record label, and said that he had this record for him, and he said, I want this much money for it. And Profile Records said, no. We'll take it for half that much money. And Russell, with no other choices, said, fine, we'll take the deal. And so at that cut rate deal, Profile Records released It's Like That. And so that original 12-inch immediately took off. Boom. It ended up selling like 20,000 copies of just this 12-inch. Now they, they needed a very quickly, they needed a B-side for this single. So they had to come up with something fast. So what they did is they turned to the rhymes that they had had for a long time. These were rhymes they'd come up with in the park and in the attic, in their lab, that they had had for a while. They just dug through their notebook, found some old words. And then for the track, they went back to Larry Smith and Russell said, hey, you know that beat from Action that I like so much? I want to reuse that. Let's use the groove that Orange Crush had on Action. And so Sucker MCs used the Orange Crush groove. And so they subtitled the song, Crush Groove One because it's the same beat that Orange Crush had used on Action, which is where you get the name for the movie later on. Exactly, Crush Groove. And so this song was called Sucker MCs, and this song where it's like that was the A side and blew up and was a hit on the radio. It was the B side that blew up on the clubs on the club scene because this was something brand new. This was something that nobody else was doing. It was nothing but beat, scratch, and rhymes. These were those battle rhymes that Ron had to come up with in the park in order to stay on the mic and not let anybody else have it. And he put it all on this record. At a time when other people are are putting in softer sounds and trying to be more musical, they're just coming straight from the street, just the beat, just the rhymes. And this record single-handedly took rap from this original breakbeat culture and introduced the drum machine as the sound of choice and defined the sound of rap 
for the rest of the decade. So they put out, it's like that with the B-side of Sucker MCs, and it's huge. They now have a reason to go on the road and perform. This song would end up cracking the top 20 of the Black Singles chart and peak at number 15. So it was in April of 1983 that Joseph Simmons had his moment where he's walking down the hallways at LaGuardia Community College, I guess getting ready to go work on a cadaver or something. (laughs) And he hears it's like that coming out of the radio that somebody else has in the hallway there. And he has that moment where he just goes nuts. He's like, that's my song. That's my song. That's my song. That's awesome. Over at St. John's University, Daryl turned in his official notice for leave of absence. And he proudly says that he's been absent ever since. (laughs) So here we are in the spring of 83, and it's time for Run DMC to perform for the first time. Now imagine Daryl McDaniels. He's only performed in the attic when he's drunk. And he's supposed to get out on stage in front of everybody. But here's the thing. Joe had been telling Jazzy Jace, hey, man, my brother's going to make a record for me. When I do, you're going to be my DJ. You're going to be my DJ. And Jason's like, yeah, whatever, whatever. Finally, they have a record, and, they're, and they've got a gig. And he's like, hey, be ready. We're going to come get you. And so, so Jason's had nothing to do with the creation of these songs, but he's going to be the guy that's on stage with them as the DJ. Just like the BC Boys had to bring in DJ Double R, they needed to bring in somebody to be their DJ. Jazzy Jace was going to be their guy. He's not like super complex in what he does with the tune turntables. He's not, you know, flamboyant or anything, but he is like clockwork precision on what he does. He is simple, but he does not make mistakes. He is a metronome of timing and he's reliable. That's exactly right. I've yeah. seen them in concert three different times. And what strikes me about Jason Mizell is that he is controlling the show. It might not be obvious from the crowd what he's doing, but he's running the stage show. He's con- he's controlling the flow of everything that's going on in their act. And so this is the guy they wanted for their very first gig. As it turns out, they forgot to pick him up. They left from Manhattan without him. <laughs> <laughs> Russ had found a second gig from earlier in the same day and they had to hurry up and get over there and they left Jason behind. And so run and D go for their first day ever of gigs and they've got two in one day and Jason's back at the park in Queens. Like that was my shot. You know, he's in tears. He's like, I can't believe I messed up. He's probably glad that he did not go because those gigs were a complete disaster. The first gig proved to be an office party with a bunch of stiff suits. (laughs) Had absolutely no idea what rap was. It was like under fluorescent lights, you know, in the middle of the afternoon. Right. And to make matters worse, Daryl and Joe had to share a single microphone. (laughs) (laughs) When you think about what they do where they're switching lines back and forth real quickly, they had to like huddle like cheek to cheek real close to each other, (laughs) awkwardly around this one mic to a bunch of people that had no idea what they were doing. Right. And it was it fell completely flat. It was it was dumb and it was terrible. That night they went to the legendary Disco Fever, one of the top clubs for this whole scene, to perform It's Like That and Sucker MCs, the only two songs they have, and they've been on the radio, and they get out there and they don't have their look figured out yet. Uh-huh. They're wearing their daddy's suits, suit jackets. Clad. Like imagine Bob Euchre. And his plaid <laughs> sports jacket. That's what these guys were wearing at their first show. They were not cool men in black. Oh they were out of this world crazy. So the the club, this is the hardcore, you know, this is a, this is a club in the Bronx. 
and they're laughing at them. And they find out they're from Queens. Oh, forget <laughs> it. Get these Queens people out of here. And they're laughing at these guys. Well, what is this? Like, wear your daddy's clothes day? What's this career day? What, what are you doing? So it was humiliating. It was a complete disaster. And, and Daryl in particular just wanted to crawl under a rock. He was like, I quit. I'm done. I, I can't do this. You know, I, there's no way. Well, luckily for all of us, uh, they were able to talk him into persisting. But that first day of gigs was a complete disaster. Wow. But they did go on the road. And they, they began hustling every day, playing. They began driving outside of New York City, and they were they were lining up more and more gigs. And they had Jason with them. And it was at these shows, in a moment of uh, an improvised rhyme, that D renamed him, instead of Jazzy Jace, he was known as Jam Master J. Jam Master J. And by this time, Daryl McDaniels, who had been going by Easy D, had come up with the name DMC by playing with his last name. Uh-huh. Of Daryl Daryl Mac Daryl McDaniel's he came up with DMC he decided that it would stand for devastating mic controller yep and, yep. and Russell agreed to it because his favorite car was from the DeLorean Motor Company yes there you go are you telling me that you built a time machine out of a DeLorean <laughs> it was during the it's like that recording sessions that Russell informed them that their name was going to be Run DMC. Okay. He told them that's your name. Okay, so I've got a story about how they got their name. So you, you talked about how he was playing with the, the letters from their last name, and, of course, Run gets his name from way back from DJ Run. And so Russell says, you guys are going to be called Run DMC. And they're like, no, that's terrible. No, we're, we're ruined. This is horrible. They wanted to be called like the – the treacherous twosome or the dynamic duo or the gruesome twosome. They had all this, uh, you know, the, the people that they looked up to. Yeah. I had numbers in their names. Yeah. You had, yeah. All the guys before them had these long, elaborate, cool names. The furious five, the funky four, the treacherous three cold crush brothers. Yes. And Russell's like, Nope, you guys are run DMC. Yeah. They hated it because it, it broke from the naming conventions of the time. They thought it sounded stupid. Like, what is that? Uh, it, it served them well, though, because they had such a new sound and a new look that that new type of name just only further served to really establish them as something new. That's a really cool name. And in fact, just to go along with that, their logo is phenomenal. You showed me a shirt this week where you were out shopping and found that shirt and yes. like, Hipsters wear it now. They have it as onesies and stuff like that. Uh, and it's really cool. And he actually said, I, I, I heard Daryl McDaniel say that somebody told him that the three most effective logos out there were Coca-Cola, McDonald's, and Run DMC. I believe it. <laughs> <laughs> By the fall of the 83, Run DMC had found themselves as the opening act for a variety of headliners, including Cameo. Midnight Star and the Gap Band. Okay, but, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait, 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 wait. Cameo, famous for the song "Word Up." Yes. The Gap Band, I know, is from Oklahoma City, <laughs> and their song is "You Dropped a Bomb on Me." Yes. Okay, and what was the other one? Midnight Star. Midnight Star. I got nothing. No parking on the dance floor. Oh, okay, okay. Or, or and a uh, freakazoid. There you go. There it is. There it is. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Okay. 
Also, and this is weird, I know Run DMC only had one single out of this time. As far as anybody knew, they were they could have just been a one-hit wonder. Right. But here they in the fall of 83, there was actually an episode of the Jeffersons that featured Run DMC's one and only song, It's Like That. And it was performed on that episode by all people by Sister Sledge. Wow. So I wonder if I, I'm confident. I think I probably watched every episode of the Jeffersons. I think I probably saw that. That's interesting. And I was breakdancing at the time. So I probably, I bet I was wise enough to go, why is this girl group singing my rap song right now? Yeah. But they didn't do half that job. So as 83 is rolling into 84, Run DMC is staying on the road playing shows. And Russell and Larry Smith go back into the studio to work on more material. The first thing they do is come out with another two-sided single that follows the same pattern as It's Like That in Sucker MCs, which is a song called Hard Times, which, again, follows that the message template of talking about how tough things can be. Right. And on the B side was a song called Jam Master J. Jam Master J, run DMC. Yeah, I heard about yeah. this. So Daryl McDaniels talks about this, too. He said they had to write a song called Jam Master J. And they had to have some way of introducing him as part of the band. Okay, it's a three-part band. You have Run, you have DMC, and everybody in the crowd is going, okay, I get it. He's Run, he's DMC. Who in the hell is that? <laughs> and so they had to use that song as a way to introduce him and sort of unite him as that third member of the band. Not only did they do that with the song, but they would go on to sample this song throughout the rest of their careers. Because this is the part where he goes, Run, DMC, and Jam Master J, and he's cutting on Run, 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 and all his future records. And in their live shows, Jam Master J is the first one on stage, and he's he's cutting on these names that are mentioned on this song. It's Jam Master J record on the turntable that he's using to bring the act out on stage and to hype the crowd. So that song is significant for that reason. As a matter of fact, there's a lyric in that song that goes, We're... Five, not four, not three, just two. Two MCs with the claim to fame. Okay. When Daryl says, we're not five, we're not four, we're not three, just two, he's calling out his competition. He is specifically referencing the Furious Five, the Funky Four, the Treacherous Three. And so this is another example of just these battle rhymes, this confrontational, aggressive nature that Run DMC was bringing to the records. The A-side record, Hard Times, was actually a Curtis Blow song. He had recorded a version earlier. So these, this came out, and it also did well, but it began to create a split between Russell and Larry. So Russell was all about beat only. Just give me the beat, nothing but the beat. And Larry Smith, who had a long career as a session player, he was trying to bring more musicality to these records. And whenever he would introduce musical or melodic elements, Russell would get mad and say, you're just trying to soften the sound. I don't want to soften. So then one day they're in the studio. Now you have to understand Larry is somebody that's been playing in bands for years, including rock music. And they're, they take Run and Daryl to the studio to record a song that they've got ready, but they have to wait for the recording booth to come open. Because inside is the hard rock group called Riot. And Riot is busy recording a song, and they're banging away and wailing away on their guitars. And the guys sitting out in the lobby can't help but hear it. Right. And Larry's grooving to it, and Russ is like, you know what? We can be loud, too. And so after Daryl and Joe recorded their parts that day, Russ said, why don't we try to add some guitar the way Riot was doing? This was after Run and D had recorded their raps. And so Larry calls up his friend Eddie Martinez, 
who had played guitar on Christmas rapping and had yeah. been in Orange Crush with him. They said, can you come over here and lay down some guitar tracks for us? So Eddie Martinez did that. And this became the first rock rap fusion known as Rock Box. Everybody credits Walk This Way as being the first rock rap combination. It's not. It's right here. This is Rockbox. Yeah. And it's this is the first one that's on MTV. This is the first rap song on MTV. That's right. So it, Run DMC were the group that pioneered introducing rock and roll sounds to rap. But it was not Walk This Way. It was Rockbox. Now, Eddie Martinez is a name that you've mentioned before on your show because... He, would, he was a career session player. He played for a lot of big guys like David Lee Roth and Mick Jagger and all these people. But he's perhaps most famously known for playing the guitar part in Robert Palmer's Addicted to Love. <laughs> wow. <laughs> wow. That had to be you. That had to have been you that, that, that mentioned that. I love Addicted to Love. Yeah. Yeah. So the guitar player on Addicted to Love is the same guy wailing away on Run DMC's Rock Box. That is awesome. That is a great nugget right there, man. Yeah. Another great nugget is one of the three of us is actually dressed up as Robert Palmer on Halloween with his wife <laughs> as one of the dancing guitarists. My wife and I dressed up as the uh, Addicted to Love video. So <laughs> I had a black tie and a white suit or white shirt, and she had her hair slicked back and all the makeup on. It was awesome. Yep. <laughs> and this was coming at a time when, like, the Furious Five and Melly Mel and Zulu Nation, they were all wearing these elaborate costumes, almost like the village people, right? A lot of studded leather and headdresses and just kind of just crazy, like, disco flamboyant costumes. And Run DMC are just wearing their street clothes, right? They're in leather suits or they're in Adidas track suits. And they've got, they've got their, uh, their Stetson hats, whatever you call those fedoras. This came straight from, from Jason Mizell's personal fashion sense. This is how he dressed. Uh-huh. And they just kind of adopted that look. And they said, look, we're just going to be real. This is coming from Russell. Just be real. And so this new look and this new sound, this new aggressive sound, this firmly established the new school of hip hop. This was hip hop 3.0 with Run DMC and with this album. We now moved into a different era. We kind of leave the 70s and the early 80s behind. We're moving into the mid 80s where Run DMC is going to reign supreme. Suddenly, with this album, everybody that came before them looks old and corny and obsolete. And that includes Sugar Hill Records. Right. So there's a space in the marketplace for a new label to step up. Well, this is the summer of 1984, and we've already talked about it. At this point, Russell has already met Rick Rubin. And that summer, they established Def Jam Records as their label. And immediately, Russ wants to get Run DMC signed to Def Jam. And he can't do it. Profile Records realized they just had a winning lottery ticket land in their lap. And they are not letting go of Run DMC. Uh-huh. So, and so, ironically, Russell, who, was, who ended up leading the biggest rap label in history, whose brother was in the biggest rap act in history, he never had his brother on his own on his label. Wow! Wow! Run DMC never recorded for Def Jam. That's insane. That I did not crazy. know that. I just figured that was a, a lock. 
what happened though in the fall of 84 there was a concert promoter down in florida his name was ricky walker he was somebody that had managed tours before for the commodores and for the jacksons he just had this idea that he can get a bunch of rap acts together and some of these break dancers that were in the movies that were coming out and put together a, a package tour so he went to sugar hill records but they were having tough times and they couldn't come to terms so because sugar hill he couldn't come to an agreement with them. He approached Rush Entertainment, Rush Management, who then agreed to provide all of the talent. And so they put together a tour that was called the Fresh Fest. It had Curtis Blow, Houdini, Run DMC, and the Fat Boys were a group not managed by Rush, but were being produced by Curtis. Okay, so just a minute ago, you were mentioning Jam Master Jay being sort of in charge of their fashion. And they dressed in their street clothes and it was the jogging suits and this and that. I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, but the non-shoelace bearing Adidas was part of that fashion. Is that correct? Yes. And the reason why those shoes didn't have shoelaces is because... When you went to jail, they took your shoelaces away. Huh. It's kind of similar to the modern day guys who don't wear belts and they wear their pants down low because they take your belt away when you go to jail. A run DMC was non-felon shoes. Well, and that's that's the thing is they said, my Adidas only brings good news. <laughs> right? Excellent. That's good stuff. Okay. Uh, so the Fresh Fest was hugely successful. It toured in the at the end of 84. It made $3.5 million in just 27 dates. And it succeeded in taking rap out of the Bronx and taking it across the country. Okay. But in, in this was during a time when Russ was trying to get Run DMC to Def Jam. They had Def Jam had just signed their big deal with Columbia Records, got their $600,000 that we talked about. And he wanted to bring Run DMC over and he couldn't do it. Profile wouldn't let him go. And Run DMC needed cash. So they ended up rushing their next studio album. They got back together with Larry Smith and they went back in the studio without really having a clear vision of what they wanted to do. And they didn't have all their material ready, but they had to get an album out because they needed money. What we ended up with was the album King of Rock, which they will say that is their weakest of their early albums. And the reason why is that they just didn't have a clear centered vision. And so you see a little bit of Ruben's influence on the King of Rock album. There's a song called Can You Rock It Like This that was actually written by LL Cool J. That was due to Ruben's influence. There was a single off the album called Jam Master Jammin' that Ruben actually played guitar on for the single version. And their title track was called King of Rock. And that was definitely under the influence of Rick Rubin. And it was their second attempt to meld rock and roll with rap it was kind of this thematic sequel to rock box it's called king of rock it is awesome it's one of their best songs i absolutely love king of rock i'm the king of rock there is none higher sucker mcs should call me sire to burn my kingdom you must choose fire i won't stop rocking till i retire have you seen the king of rock video yes if you watched if you watched mtv in 1985 you saw the king of rock video so run dmc was the first rap group to have a video played on mtv it was rockbox but they were back the very next year with king of rock and i remember seeing this video very clearly it's got the uh it's got bud melman in it the, the old That's guy right. from david letterman Yes, yeah. he was hilarious from the David Letterman show. So 1985, you know, that's also the year of We Are the World by USA for Africa. And it became this massive, massive project to fight starvation in Africa and in Ethiopia. Yes. This led uh, Bob Geldof to the idea of organizing Live Aid. Live Aid took place in July of 1985. 
yep. that probably deserves its own episode from you is this enormous project two <laughs> simultaneous concerts in london and philadelphia on the same day yep. it, it was like the woodstock of the 80s yes took place on july 13th and they were booking all these guys at the press conference in the weeks leading up to this massive event that people could hardly get their brains around how big this was going to be it began to dawn on people that they hardly had any black artists at all anywhere in the lineup and they didn't have any rappers and they started catching a little bit of pr heat and they were trying to say that they were reaching out to black artists and that nobody was was accepting them that turned out that wasn't true they were just kind of trying to cover for themselves russell rush management reached out to live aid and said hey what about my guys i've got two albums on the top 200 list I've got five singles in the in the top 20 of the black singles. I've got videos and heavy rotation on MTV. How about you book my guys on your show? Yeah. They said, sorry, we don't have any room. We're booked up solid. Well, that was a problem because they found out later that after Run DMC had been told that, only then did the Beach Boys, Madonna, and Tina Turner get offered spots on the bill. The Beach Boys played live <laughs> Wow. Okay. Yes. Okay. Don't, don't, don't. Hey, I know me. that's your thing, right? Don't distract me on the Beach Boys. We'll be here for tomorrow. <laughs> I'm sorry. But in 1985, Madonna makes sense. Tina Turner makes sense. Run DMC makes sense. And, and the Beach Boys, right? Okay, all right. Fine. Okay. <laughs> the Beach Boys always make sense, okay? Okay, okay. <laughs> so, so, with increasing negative publicity, they really started backtracking and finally... They went to Run DMC and offered them a spot on the bill. So we want you to play at Live Aid. So did Run DMC play Live Aid? Yes, they did. Did anybody see them? Essentially, no. They came on at 10.15 in the morning on the Philadelphia stage. Uh And they played about a 12-minute set. They played two songs. They played King of Rock. And they played Jam Master Jammin'. So the way this event worked, they would alternate between London and Philadelphia. Okay? So... It started with a, on the Philadelphia stage, just before Run DMC went on, was a reunion performance by Black Sabbath at 10 o'clock in the morning. (laughs) Okay. The only time they might be sober. That's right. You got to catch them early. (laughs) So when that was over, they cut to Charday playing on the London stage. And so while she's playing, the stage is getting set back up for Philadelphia. Uh, okay, keep going. Okay, so he goes from Black Sabbath in Philly straight to Charday in London. They come back to Philly and it's Run DMC. Okay. Okay, Run DMC gets part of one song out and then they cut away from them. And the rest of their performance is not televised. And the reason why is they're doing this big introduction in London for Sting. And so Sting gets all the airtime and Run DMC basically gets cut out of the broadcast. <laughs> but... They did step on stage at Live Aid, and the poor got paid. There you go. There you go. That's hey, that's that's better than a kick in the pants. <laughs> Just a couple of weeks after Live Aid, they appeared on Dick Clark's American Bandstand, and that was followed shortly thereafter by Fresh Fest '85, where they restaged the concert tour from the year before with the same talent lineup. This time, twice as many cities, and they made twice as much money. It was hugely successful in in getting hip hop out to the masses. But this time, among the breakdancers, it included the 12-year-old son of the tour manager, a little boy by the name of Jermaine Dupree, that you may have heard of. Okay. So speeding through 1985, the Crush Groove movie comes out in October. And during this time, Russ is trying to capitalize on Run DMC's popularity. 
And he actually approaches The Cosby Show to try to get Run DMC booked on an episode of The Cosby Show. And Bill Cosby said, you can have a Coke and the smile and get out of here. (laughs) (laughs) We don't want that kind of music on my show. And so they were turned down. For those who don't remember, the Cosby show was a humongous thing. If they could have landed the Cosby show, that would have been, they would have been handed the keys to the kingdom. I mean, that was a hugely popular show. Well, as it turns out, Malcolm Jamal Warner was a huge Run DMC fan. Is that right? Okay. Theo. And the guy playing Theo Huxable on the Cosby show. Uh And at the same time, NBC was running a program called Friday Night Videos. Yes. And so even though Bill Cosby didn't want that kind of music on his show, they, um, at the time that the Crush Groove movie came out, um, Malcolm Jamal Warner and Lisa Bonet reprised their Cosby show characters from the set of the Cosby show, recorded a segment in character for Friday night videos where they introduced Run DMC's next music video. And they played the King of Rock clip, not their, not their video that had been all over MTV, but the clip from the Crush Groove movie, which was coming out at the same time. Okay. So they got they ran an end around around uh, around Bill Cosby there. So basically, as soon as the Fresh Fest was over, there was another opportunity to work on a couple of other charity songs. This was at a time when apartheid in South Africa was kind of at its worst, and there was a growing sentiment among entertainers for a boycott. For, for playing there. Sun City was this huge resort for the white people in South Africa where they would pay enormous amounts of money for entertainers to come play. But it was getting to the point where like you could not in good conscience do that because of the, uh, of the apartheid that was going on, the, the racial discrimination that was in South Africa. And so a musician you may have heard of by the name of Stephen Van Zant decided to record a record to bring attention to this situation he had, okay. a pretty, he had a pretty big part in an album in 1984 <laughs> from he's from bruce springsteen's e street band yep 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 he's very political and he was able to rally all these artists together to make this record he got like 50 of them more than 50 of them but first among them was run dmc and so they they put this song out and it was a huge success and it was a huge success that did a lot to bring attention to the, what was going on in South Africa at the time that they were approached. Daryl and Joe knew nothing about any of it and so they learned all about it and they so of course they supported this project and the song was called Sun City and New York Times ended up naming it the single of the year for 1985. Wow. At the same time, January of 86 is just around the corner, and it's going to be the first ever MLK holiday. Uh And Martin Luther King's son, Dexter King, decided he wanted to produce a rap record to teach kids about his father and the work he had done. And so he approached Run DMC and Curtis Blow and New Edition, LaBarge, Lisa Lisa. All these artists collaborated on a song called King Holiday. And they wanted to get it out in time for the for the middle of January for the first first iteration of this holiday that's coming around. But the record label would not give them the money for a music video. So guess who came to the rescue and provided his own money to make sure the music video happened? Prince. Whoa. Wow. He'd been unable 
to participate in the record because he was busy filming Under the Cherry Moon. But he came back and provided the money and allowed this music video to be made. That's awesome. Let me just make a comment. I can't let that go without saying Under the Cherry Moon is one of the worst movies of the 1980s. <laughs> Purple Rain, awesome. Under the Cherry Moon, not awesome. Keep going. <laughs> okay, so that gets us to 1986 <laughs> and it is these early months of 1986 where they begin working on their next album that will be raising hell at this point larry smith is out of the picture and rick rubin who had worked on king of rock and can you rock it like this and jam master jamming he took over as the producer for this new project the table was set for run dmc this was their career making moment they knew that everything had lined up for this to be the album to put them over the top, okay? Because they had unprecedented visibility. They had Live Aid, they had American Bandstand. They had been on these charity songs that had gotten a lot of play. They had appeared on TV shows. They were in a movie, okay? Everybody knew who they were. At the same time, LL Cool J's first album had come out. So that's, that LL Cool J's first album is called Radio. It was also produced by Rick Rubin. So there's actually a, a hip-hop trilogy by, by Ruben, and Radio was the first one to be released. Wow. And it came out, it was huge. There were several hits from it. And this created an immense competition between Run and LL Cool J. They really had this contentious relationship that was very combative, and they, they were trying to outwrap each other. They would have these freestyle rhyming battles backstage, and, and Run would get mad at LL thinking he was trying to cop his style and all this kind of stuff. The album had come out and was huge. And so Run was like, I got to be better than LL. This was the moment. All eyes were on Run DMC. They were never going to have the table set for them. And the competition was fierce. So they had to come with a grand slam. They, they didn't like the way King of Rock had turned out. And so they were determined to make sure that the next album would be the best it could possibly be. And with that attitude, they went into the studios with Rick Rubin and started laying down tracks for what would prove to be their greatest album in their career and one of the greatest ever in the history of rap. So are we ready to jump in track by track? Next week. Oh, man. Next week. What? We're going to go track by track. We'll go through the, each of these songs from Raising Hell, and we will talk again with Def Dave. Dear listeners, if you have been with us this long, please don't forget to hit that follow button in the face. Make sure to check us out on Facebook and Twitter. And if you want to send us an email, you can hit us at shirleypodcast at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening, Dave. It has been awesome to hear these stories. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me on. I love talking about this stuff. We will be back with Def Dave next week and go through Raising Hell track by track see you then now peter piper pick peppers but run rock rock humpty dumpty fell down that's his heart time jack nimble what nimble and he was quick but jam mass mud faster jack saw jay's dick